Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 121 of the podcast, the topic is the future of MarTech. Our guest is Bant Breen, chairman and founder of Canary. In this conversation, we talk about the evolution of marketing technology, emerging tech such as AI and NLP, and apps including chatbots, apps that parse information, bots writing PR copy, and we extrapolate what this might mean for the creative profession. The host of this podcast, uh, Trond Arne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Trondsbooks at trondandtime.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. And how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Look, uh, we are going to talk about some real hard stuff because it seems kind of innocuous, like future of MarTech and like, you know, marketing is like a little fluffy, this and that. But in fact, I don't think it's going to be that kind of discussion. You, you're very serious about this business and I've been in and out of it. And, and, and there's some real conversations to be had. We, we started them. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have more of them. Cool. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. I, you know, uh, you know, one of the problems I, 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 um, you know, I, I entered the advertising industry when I was, uh, uh, like a teenager, uh, my best friend and I thought we were, uh, you know, super clever and set up an agency back in the day. And so I've always loved it, but the, the reality is that this is such a great time. There's so much change happening and, um, I think what, what I alluded to right at the beginning there, uh, you know, before we started, was this idea that we've just got to make sure that we don't take a retrograde step back right now. As the pandemic ends, you know, I hope to God we just don't, don't go back. Yeah, you look, know? we're going to cover this because that was what I was alluding to as well. We, we, um, it sounds like you know, fascinating technologies, this and that, but there are these forces in either direction that just, uh, you know, are pushing us back. Let's start with you, though. I, I'm curious. So we're going to get to your PhD. It's kind of unique, actually, in this regard. Sure. Um, 
You're a founder of Canary, of course. We'll get to that as well. Yep. Um, you have a master's degree in history. I like that. <laughs> yeah. and I'm not <laughs> laughing because I don't. I love history. But but you know and we're you talking know, Trond, about if if the world had, had gone a slightly different way so just <laughs> yeah. so you know um, yeah. my father my father is a kind of I guess a, a famous American historian so um, you know most America most kids in America will would have used my father's textbook in high school if they'd studied American history this is teach. T.H. Breen, yeah. And, um, and so history is n- not only like uh, something that interests me, but it's like the family business. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love that. I love right? that. And so I grew up basically in archives and, you know, my dad dragging me around to various, you know, uh, battlefields and things like that. And so, um, so when I uh, you know, got into graduate school, I gravitated to what I loved, which was Italian history. And, um, which period? So relatively modern Italian history, 19th century Italian history, um, right around the Risorgimento, kind of the, the creation of Italy as a nation. And, um, uh, there's a particular character, a gentleman named Giuseppe Garibaldi, who, uh, who, is unknown to most people today, and yet there are statues of Garibaldi in cities all around the world. Um, he was uh, he was one of the key figures in uniting Italy as a nation, and um, so I wrote a I wrote a, a thesis about him, and uh, had a lot of fun getting to getting to know him and learning about kind of his path. And he he's actually had a huge impact on my kind of my life and kind of the way I think. So um, So what was so special about him? He was a vagabond and an international traveler. He did a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, he he's an amazing guy. I mean, I I if he was more famous, there I'm sure there would be more movies about him because he just had this incredible life. Um, you know, he grew up in uh just in in the uh kind of the northern kind of northwest part of what would have been what would be Italy now um and he ended up basically being a mercenary he fought all through South America he lived in New York City for a while um but he became a prominent player in the whole movement for Italy because there was a moment where he and a group of individuals took over Rome and Hmm. um this was like in the late 1840s or 18, early 1850s. That, and he, um, you know, held out for a while, as long as he could, <laughs> um, but kind of set the unification moment, a movement in place. And um, he then is very, he's known for kind of a, a romanticized victory where he took a very a small group of soldiers and conquered Sicily. Um, and, and that, that victory, uh, is, it's kind of like, you know, equivalent to George Washington crossing the Delaware and, you know, defeating the British in, you know, in Trenton, kind of the beginning of the change, right? So that was when Washington kind of switched the, we were getting crushed by the British. People don't really remember this, but we were getting crushed by the British and 
the Americans fled into New Jersey and were basically done and really done. And um, Washington set up a skirmish uh, against the British and, and actually had a huge victory. And it kind of the same thing with, with Garibaldi. He had this incredible victory, which turned the momentum of everything around and um, ended up really helping to create what became modern Italy. So, well, thanks for 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 that. Sorry, I totally mean, nothing to do with technology. <laughs> no, I, it's not unrelated. And another yeah. historian that I respect, A.G.P. Taylor, apparently said that Garibaldi was the only admirable person in modern history. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, you and got so, some support so, for your. So thesis. that's why, actually, I went to Cambridge, and uh, that's why Taylor is one of the kind of the the great great. Italian uh, Risorgimento historians. Um, he, yeah, I mean, his his works definitely had a huge impact on me as well. Um, but, uh, you know, the things about Garibaldi that I liked, if you really want to know, is that he was one of these people who, he, he, um, he, he was offered so many positions, you know, they wanted him to be like king or, you know, president. And he, he was one of these individuals who would basically be like, listen, this is my role. I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to step out. Like he, he knew kind of what he did and what he didn't do. And I, I, I've always liked that about him. And then he also just had this kind of relentless, uh, un, you know, unrelenting will. Like he, he really believed like, it, you know, it's not about winning all the time. It's just like, constantly moving forward, moving forward, never giving up. And he, he never gave up. And, and, and I just, you know, and I just, uh, I just always love that about him. So. Bent, the, the, the good and long intro here is important, I think, because one of the things that you do in your work, and we'll talk to it in a second, is, you know, you speak about a subject, right? Martech and reputation and all that stuff, which there is a lot of fluff out there on these topics. And there mm -hmm. are a lot of people who at the surface have had your career who speak that language, mm -hmm. but without really ever having dug down a little bit deeper. And you mm -hmm. are not one of those people and that's why you are here. So you did in your PhD that one of the largest surveys of the creative profession. Yeah. What did you find there? And, and, and yeah. What's yeah, that I mean, it's interesting. I, I fin, you know, I, I finished it. It was, um, uh, I received my PhD at the, at the very beginning of COVID really last March was when I, I, I was awarded my PhD, but the, um, the study itself basically looked at the advertising industry and I selected the advertising industry and, and how they were perceiving a, uh, artificial intelligence uh, because for a particular reason, I could have probably selected a couple other industries, but the reason why I selected advertising is that it's an industry that claims that it's creative, right? It's a, yeah. you know, it's an industry that claims that it's an idea driven industry. Right. And um, so it's not like, you know, ma making steel or something like that. Right. So it's, and, and so arguably it, because it's an idea driven industry, it should be the most human in a way. And, and you know, the, the, the idea of coming up with new thoughts and new ideas. And so I wanted to kind of get a sense of how they, this industry was, was looking at machine learning because, you know, from a technology perspective, um, 
I was, I was aware uh, as I did the PhD of some of the incredible work that was being done at Google. Really, Google probably was one of the, the companies that impressed me the most, as well as some, some academic work from Carnegie Mellon and a whole bunch of other universities. And, um, and, and so I wanted to get a sense of whether the ad, ad world was awake to this. Did they, did they believe in it? And it was fascinating to listen to some of the greats, the great advertising executives kind of take that almost uh, Luddite position, right? The, uh, the great, the famous uh, Ned Ludd. Nothing right? new the, here. Yeah, Nothing the, new idea here. That, like, you know, the bashing of the machines, like, you know, no idea will come from anybody but a man, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it was fascinating because it seemed so out of sync with, um, with what I was seeing uh, develop in the, in the machine learning space. And, um, and so, you know, the, the big, there's so many findings in, in the thesis but um, in general, uh, the understanding of machine learning was low um, across the industry. And because of that, there was almost like a naivete uh, in terms of their understanding of AI. So it was uh, either uh, people being cheerleaders going, oh, yeah, cool, it's neat, right? Uh, to people that were wildly fearful. Um, you know, oh, it's going to take my job. It's going to destroy the world, you know, thinking that it's... Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, as the Terminator, and and not really understanding how it could impact their operations, improve their day to day, um, maybe make more time for um, high, higher order learning or higher order strategy. Um, not any, almost no thinking about upskilling of their workforces, and um, a lot of discussion. You know, the ad industry loves to talk about ethics, maybe doesn't do a lot about it, but talks about it. So there was a lot about the morality of AI and, you know, a lot of people were, you know, like very, very concerned about that um, and, but weren't really doing anything, right? So it was, uh, so there was a lot, a lot of lack of action. So I, I think that, uh, you know, that Probably, I think will change. Uh, I would say in 2022, um, the 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 great fascinating thing that's going to come out, I think, from this pandemic, is that the world at the end of this year will start to feel how many things actually changed during the pandemic, and there were a lot of things that moved forward in the machine learning space, a lot, and so. Uh, you know, you're going to start to see the impact of it across the board um, in every industry. But um, uh, I would ex expect companies that don't have their plans together, um, they'll suffer in 2022. They'll do a lot of catch up, basically. Vant, it's so fascinating to have this conversation because I enter a lot of conversation from the opposite point of view because, you know, elsewhere in the industry, in many industries, I should say, the opposite has been the case, right? The Everybody has bought into the AI thing to the extent that they've forgotten that the humans are also involved and these things will go somewhat slower because you actually have to get to your point, the workforce on board. And there are lots mm -hmm. of discussions to be had in, in that regard. But the creative industry, like you said, according to your research, seems to sort of take these oscillating positions that are either over, too negative 
dismissive, like creatives, like you said, or um, somehow just believing all the all the gospel and and the truth. Then surely is somewhere in between, but but not like in between, like oh, nothing's really happening. It's sort of slow. You can don't you don't have to worry. There, there, there are some changes. I want to speak about some of those changes. So when you, when you think about the creative function, so many people would say, yeah, humans are creative, machines are not creative. Machines automate and, and you know, make things easier and efficient and productive. And, but you, you sort of have a more subtle point, I think, which is machines have entered the creative professions and are here to stay. Well, where have they entered and where are they here to stay? Um, give us a little picture. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you'll see, you'll see um, machine learning being applied across the board in areas like design. Um, uh, you'll also see it uh, in terms of um, audio and music. Um, can kind of talk to you a little bit about the different types of things that we 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 see in those areas. Um, to give you an example, it wasn't long ago that uh, a group from Sony Music, which is actually the Sony Music Group that does this, their lab is based in Paris, came out with a product that essentially uh, created original music that was you know created by. Um, uh, an AI program that they had developed. Uh, and so this si same program has now been used by hundreds of artists who are trying to simulate music. They, they try, the album is supposed to kind of simulate kind of a Beatles-like sound, right? Uh, there have been others that have created, done the same thing uh, with, with uh, other archives. Um, we've seen, uh, are you yeah. convinced by that? Have you listened to it? So I, I, sh I should get some of those people on the show because, uh, I have an upcoming episode with, uh, Ben founder, uh, co-founder of, uh, a art AI. Yeah. I actually got some paintings, uh, created by an AI. I have them here. I unwrap them and show them to my kids and neighbors. And we have had, you know, discussions up and down about it. It is starting to affect, I mean, this is an algorithmically created art with a algorithm that they now told me are being retired. They're developing different and better ones, but very, very interesting. It doesn't certainly look like human art, but it doesn't look eerily different either, right? I mean, it's starting to look well, like I mean, look, something so, so, creative. Yeah, so there, uh, there was a, an interesting study that was done by a group of companies um, and sponsored by a Dutch bank to essentially create an original Rembrandt. And what they did is they trained, they trained um, the AI um, to, by, by showcase, sharing uh, all of the, the, the library of Rembrandt's works. And then they asked it to generate an original work, uh, of which it did. And you know, if you look at it, you can go online and take a, uh, take a peek at, at how, what was created I mean, it, it's incredible, right? It's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's amazing. Um, however, let's be clear, that's one particular type of machine learning, right? That is, um, that is where you're training kind of a system to mimic. And it's in some ways kind of, uh, uh, it, it is, there's a lot of commercial grade 
marketing and advertising that is essentially exactly the same thing. It's mimicking an artistic style. So what, when, when you ask me, like, what can be done today, that, yeah. can, that can be done today. Right. It's, right. You know, not, maybe not Rembrandt's, you know, every day, but you can correct. mimic somebody's brand style, somebody's artistic style. You can generate perhaps blog posts even soon. Oh, uh, well, tweets, I mean, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the work that came out of open AI over the last five years, you know, they had uh, their GPT product uh, that is now on the third iteration is phenomenal. Um, we actually work, I, 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 we use it at, at, at uh, Canary. It's part of our system. So what and does so, digital yeah. footprint then mean? I mean, I guess, you know, if you are a believer in the marketing industry, which most of us somewhat are, and we certainly use it, you have been outsourcing maybe as a company, your digital footprint uh, to companies creating that before. So what's the big difference outsourcing it partially to machines in addition to external labor, right? Is there a big difference? No, I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, the, the biggest issue with um, machine learning in terms of, uh, I'd say, kind of ongoing social media or iterative content that would be online is, is really kind of making sure that you follow ethical best practices as well as uh, commercial best practices. And so, you know, we lo have learned over the years that, uh, when companies like the classic uh, Microsoft story, when they unleashed their their um, their their Twitter AI uh, to the general public, it was immediately uh, corrupted to be misogynistic and racist uh, within, I think, an hour. I think it was, uh, and so. And, right, and but that that just gives people the wrong idea because yes, that is possible and scary, and that's a whole other debate. But but what you're saying is more important, which is, yes, that may happen, but there are AIs right now that people can and will and are using. Yeah, but I to think further that, their brand. Correct, but I with the reason what you wouldn't want to do is to make those things uh, autom auto completely automated, right? Right, because. Right. That's when you run into these problems like Microsoft ran into. And so, you know, generally speaking, we buy into the same philosophies that a lot of the leading players are advocating, which is utilize these tools, learn them, embrace them, but don't kind of blindly let them run on their own. Like you have to basically have kind of protocols and structures. And that's where I, I guess I get concerned in the marketing world because there's literally no operational thinking going on in terms of how these things get utilized or how you would restructure a marketing department or a, or an ad agency or anything, right? And, well, and, there's a and lot more is, checks and balances needed, right, in order to... Absolutely, but it also yeah. means that you have to change the ways that people's careers would evolve. So if I were to start at an ad agency today... Uh, it doesn't really make sense that I would go through the same steps that someone would have gone through a decade ago where, you know, you would have been maybe a junior copywriter and then a copywriter or a junior art director and then an art director, right? There's because a lot of those basic roles where you're essentially photoshopping and restructuring and editing uh, simple things that that should be able to be done by via various you know, various elements uh, from the machine learning world. 
Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm curious to hear how that transpires. I mean, I work some of my time in, in a tech company, and some of the best work we do is done by interns. Can you believe that? I mean, you know, and, and of course you believe that, I guess, because yeah. this is, these are clever people who are just here for a short amount of time and they're young and they know what's going on and they have skills that are unique and that's why they even work there. But, but it is mind boggling because the, they're not doing menial tasks. These interns come in and you wonder, sort of like, should we really, you know, let them do this core work right here? Yeah, this is crazy. I, I but, just, and it I happens just was all a, the time. I was a judge last week, uh, for, uh, an international marketing competition called uh, Globecom, which is something like 48 universities, and they compete for this like integrated marketing effort that they have to put on. And the thing that blew me away was how sophisticated their presentations were, you know. And I was just like, "Damn, that's good! Like that's yeah. that's better than most agencies I see." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, with so, no budget, right? Because these are kids. Like they I don't know, know right? I know. Well, that is nuts. Listen, yeah. let's move into reputation management. It's a topic you know uh, a lot about. It ties mm -hmm. in quite a bit to Canary, which is your business. Um, what, what is reputation management, really? Because I want to start there because it seems pretty intuitive, but I, I, I don't believe I fully understand it. Sure. Um, well, we focus as a business on executive reputation and executive online presence. And uh, I guess, you know, in, in some ways where we started on our journey with the, with the topic of reputation and kind of how we would start to define it is that um, I came from the world of advertising and uh, there was a, a ton of focus before I started Canary on brands. Everything was about your brand, your big company brand. And um, there was really very little focus in terms of what executives were doing about their own online presence. And what it, it seems so simple and obvious, but I, I found myself in the early days kind of going around like, you do understand that like if people are coming in to interview with you for a job, they're looking you up online, right? <laughs> they didn't a lot, realize. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of executives were kind of like, uh, oh, really? Like that was a bit of a surprise. And, um, and then certainly you'd see a lot of individuals that perhaps might have a, a career setback of some sort or a maybe a personal mishap, like a bad, bad situation with their marriage or you know, something like that. And suddenly that was like really hurting them because it was popping up at the top of their, their search results. And so, um, you know, we, we wanted to help executives really, I guess, manage and take control of their online presence. Uh, our philosophy as a company has always been that we don't make bad people look good. We make good people look spectacular. And it, so we, you know, we, we don't, <laughs> we, if, if you, if there's bad stuff out there about you, Tron, that's really bad, you know, you're probably going to get the call from us saying like, sorry, we can't work with you, <laughs> you Got know, it. but, um, yeah. 
But in terms of your online presence, we want you to be able to be in control of your story, how you want to tell your story, and how you manage your online presence. And and so we've built a, a platform in our system that essentially optimizes what you look like across social media and search, generates thought leadership content for you, whether that be short form content or longer form content, uh, connects you with other influencers in the specific space that you want to focus on, and then generates engagement content for you as well to engage with those individuals. And so it becomes kind of like a support function for individuals to manage their own online presence, which I would argue that over the last decade has moved up in its importance. There was, I, I could argue that a generation before, if you were a prominent executive, you could hide behind your brand. If you worked at Procter & Gamble, you could just be an invisible person and just kind of whip out your P&G card and say, I'm important. But now, now people want to know what you have to say and really, you know, that, that, that it's, it's not really appropriate just to kind of sit behind the brand anymore. Well, here's my question though, man, because people want to know what you have to say. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's not really a big issue for me because I have a lot to say, not, 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 <laughs> not, not all intel- intelligent, but luckily, you know, I interview smarter people and I kind of consolidate it and I'm a jack of all trades that way. But, you know, leaving me aside, People who don't have stuff to say, I mean, isn't a lot of the work that you must do is to actually help people, I guess you're, Soc- you're, you're sort of Plato, so- Socrates, I mean, you're sort of like digging stuff out of people because you can't just produce an identity. I mean, Well, right? I mean, look, it's funny. I, I, I guess probably philosophically, I, be- I would argue that everyone has something to say and everyone has an area that, uh, of, of like a true vein of value that they offer. And, and what we definitely focus on with folks is to, aim, is to really have them focus their online presence around that vein, around that core pillar uh, that they really want to become known for. Uh, the, one of the biggest challenges for senior executives is obviously um, many of them ha- uh, believe that they can talk about any topic, right? You know, you see... You see a lot of executives today talking about everything from traveling to Mars to, uh, you know, getting somebody out of, you know, helping a kid escape, uh, uh, you know, being trapped in a cave, right? So people have opinions about everything. And yet, you know, unless you're really like a celebrity, uh, it's very hard for people to cut through or to even be credible. And so we really emphasize trying to own your niche, find your niche, own your niche. Um, and then, and then maybe if you become a celebrity from there, you can expand out. I mean, we definitely have some of those clients that, uh, found their niche, owned their niche, and now they have broadened out and become, you know, celebrities in their own right. Interesting. So, uh, reputation management, uh, are, are these, so these are thought leaders in a certain sense? Yeah, so I would say that the vast majority of people um, that we work with aim to be thought leaders in a particular field or an area of a particular field. And in many cases, whilst um, they're not trying to be the thought leader, but they want to be a thought leader. And they want to be known as somebody who has a point of view and is part of the conversation, right? 
Um, a, a, a lot of times, I think what we have is a problem where um, it, I'd say that a lot of executives have felt like they couldn't participate in that dialogue, and we we help facilitate that process. Mm. Um, I, I find it interesting just because uh, you know we were talking about Mar, Mar, Martech, and a lot of Martech is very consumer driven and also sort of driven not just from the executive level, but the assumption is we have to be everywhere in all channels and speak to the young people kind of a thing. Like, you know, so it's that like blanket, uh, you know, just cover, cover all our bases, reach everyone, talk back to them, their language, that whole thing. But you're speaking about something quite different. Is there uh, almost like two, are, are, are there two types of firms that cater to these two needs or is it for you the same thing? In other words, this message that an executive has does it have to resonate at the bottom level with, or you know, at the main customer level with, in a, in, a, in every case, or or is it actually can the niches be much more narrow than even your responsibility, or should they be even more niche than the responsibility, you know, your their bosses will tell them, well, you know, have you done X? <laughs> no, I yeah. was working with Bant on my reputation. <laughs> um, I mean, we focus heavily on what we call their professional. Online presence, so we don't really uh, work with many executives on what they're what what their companies are doing on. So you work with them or, as individuals. Yeah, we're not working. Well, we we work with the enterprise, but you know our contracts are usually with the enterprise. But um, but we work with the individuals, and we're focused on really kind of channels that would be more professionally focused, like LinkedIn. Um, Twitter, Medium, uh, uh, YouTube, um, but what we don't do a lot of is TikTok and you know Snapchat or things like that. You know, we're not we're not trying to cater. We're not trying to link the CEO to talk to fourteen year olds. You know, that's not that's not yeah. the aim of our efforts. So, what are some other industry kind of best practices that either are out there or are really misunderstood? Because I hear industry best practice, and when I hear that word and I use it, I shouldn't use it. You know, it's just it is a little trite to talk about that, and also things change very fast. How do you deal with this? So, you know, if you were, if I was to ask you, what is the current best practice in marketing tech? I mean, how long does that stay best practice? That's my question number one. But you're right. Let's assume it is fresh now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can we? Can you even come up with something that that you are confident is best practice and it's going to last beyond the publication of this podcast? Or do things yeah, change? Quite I mean, a bit? look, it, you know, I, I think that uh, reputation and and now your digital presence are almost timeless issues and challenges for people. Um, I would say that if anything, the pandemic uh, acted as an accelerant to a digital shift that we've seen happening for the last 20 years, uh, where if, if you wanted, you could choose to basically conduct your business and your life online now almost completely. And, and certainly during the pandemic, we had to. And so um, I would imagine, you know, if, you, if you, you don't think your online presence matters now, you know, I, I don't know what else I could tell you. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so obvious that it matters uh, yeah. at this point. So, um, you know, I, I, that, that's kind of like a truism. In terms of like best practices, 
you know, you're absolutely right. They do shift and change uh, quite a bit, but some things kind of stay the same uh, in the in the sense of really going through that process of understanding what you want, what what your what your critical key pillars are that you want to focus on, and to um, working to optimize and manage that online presence. And so the tactics to deliver that and the the the, the processes of that. Uh, change certainly the mediums change. You know, when we started, it was all text-based, and now it's very it, a lot more visual, a lot more video-based. Um, but uh, the the general kind of strategic sphere, I would say, remains remains the same, um, but always evolving, always yeah. evolving. And, and, so, and yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, just in our previous conversation, you did make some pronouncement. You were sort of saying, you know, TV is 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 dead partly because of the pandemic, or has finally died. I guess could be one expression. And, yeah. and is is that like a, so? Interactive media are really happening, but one way media, you're not a big believer. So. Again, um, if 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 we'd had this conversation last summer, it, it was so clear to me that uh, some of the classic industry processes had become so challenged. Uh, you know, really, kind of network or broadcast TV being the obvious one. I mean, if you look at the anemic numbers that uh, you know what would have been kind of a hit show get compared to a successful TikTok post, it, there's no logic anymore to invest your money there. I mean, I, I know companies are doing it, but it just it's it's shocking to me that they are not em, 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 embracing it even more. That being said, during the pandemic, we did see a lot of companies shift their budgets, embrace things like connected TV, look at other ways to reach individuals. Um, now, understand that one of the biggest challenges that advertising and marketing executives have is that ultimately they don't want to work that hard. <laughs> you know? and, and the beauty of TV was that you didn't have to work that hard. You just kind of plunk most of your money there and it works. And from, a, from an agency side, it was you just need to make one good ad and just show it a lot of times. And... Now it requires a lot more strategic thinking and integrated planning and layers and dimensions that really, you know, will will only be made more simple if we embrace things like machine learning. I uh, interview a marketing professor on the podcast coming up soon, and he says marketing doesn't sell. So, and it never did. He said also adding that. Yeah, I, I understand the the uh, well. <laughs> I, I understand uh, the school of thought, and it's it's such a lovely provocative statement, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, I, I would I would tell you that I have learned a lot about marketing running uh, you know this company, and I would say that what I've learned is uh, that that marketing does sell, uh, that marketing uh, structured in, in the old ways, perhaps kind of sold loosely. Um, definitely, I would say, 
the idea that you'd say marketing doesn't work is preposterous. I mean, anybody who, anyone who's worked with in, in marketing, anyone even that looks works with a retailer. I mean, I can tell you, like when when I did work with one of the largest retailers in in America, you know, we would run an ad and feature a specific product, and we would see that product sell out in that retailer the following weekend. So. I mean, uh, it's that, that that's actually incorrect, and I I would imagine that uh, I mean, you have to think uh, about marketing in a very broad way. If you look at the new Ford F one fifty Lightning that's come out, and you look at all the the advertising and marketing communications publicity that it's gotten, and the fact that they've sold it out for the next two years already. I mean, uh, it's it's that moves the needle. <laughs> so, no, I agree. I, I think yeah. he was just trying to say that it is word of mouth that actually is the function that you're trying to influence. You know, no matter what you're doing, and once you have word of mouth, that does sell. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would say that was a truism and has been a truism for us is one of the reasons why we have we as a canary focus on the executives is that we noticed that when an individual shares something, they get anywhere between eight to 20 times more engagement for that information online versus a brand. And so that really is that power of word of mouth, right? That, that, that is, that, that's, that supports that fact. So we definitely, uh, I would definitely agree with the power of, of word of mouth. And, and, and I would say that probably, um, you know, if you went back to the seventies, uh, you'll see companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble used to try to synthesize, uh, kind of create a synthetic version of that, where where they would show kind of your 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 classic kind of housewife um, sharing, you know, how white is your laundry with their neighbor, you know, and it was that was the classic synthetic word of mouth that they would try to generate through an ad, and nowadays you can really do that in a much more personalized way, uh, directly with individuals. Yeah. How, how do you ban, because you are a thoughtful person, you come with a, an enormous sort of historical legacy to your thinking, how do you stay up to date on longer term marketing and marketing tech developments? How, what do you read, watch, who do you talk to? And, and, you know, I guess adjacent to that, you know, how, what would you recommend that my listeners do if they wanted to understand this field? Yeah, um, it's a great question uh, because my approach is probably pretty counter to what a lot of people would tell you. Um, I don't like to go to a lot of industry conferences. Uh, I think they're a total waste of time. <laughs> you thought I, that I, before the pandemic? Or I thought after it was the... true before the pandemic. I, I go to a very select group of conferences. I have colleagues that go to literally like 40 or 50 of these events every year. And I just. So you must I love webinars it, then, Ben. I find no? it mind numbing. <laughs> we were yeah. talking about webinars before. They're not, no, they're also not a great substitute. No. No, I mean, look, I, I, I would say that there are certain events like CES that uh, are interesting because they do tend to set the tone for certain topics. Um, I've found that Mobile World Congress has been similar in the mobile space. Um, traditionally, South by Southwest as an event was a great social media event. Uh, a lot of amazing trends came out of South by Southwest. I think that stopped. 
I'd see, I, that's probably stopped, I think, the last two or three years. Uh, so I don't know if that's really worth it anymore. What I do is there's, I have a list of about, I don't know, probably about 30 or 40 people that I follow online. And this is kind of a mix of uh, venture capitalists, um, entrepreneurs, um, uh, influencers that really, I think, are incredibly, um, incredibly open with their thoughts and incredibly helpful. Um, I, right now, uh, there's a, a, a guy who works at an agency, uh, Brendan Gahan, who I really love what he's posting on LinkedIn. Um, he, you know, talking about issues like clubhouse, but not doing it in a way where a lot of times people will just look at something like that and just will be like fans, you know, and not really kind of talking about the issues around it or whether it's any good. Yeah. And, and, jo- and join and, my, join my, my, my stuff on clubhouse. I've seen yeah, those. Yeah. But I mean, I think what, what we need to see more of is critical thinking and, it, it, critical thinking not done in a negative way, but in a, in a way where people are professionals and they talk about the positives and the negatives, where this actually can play a role, where it can't play a role, and go forward from there. I mean, uh, Clubhouse is a great example of, uh, of, of an incomplete masterpiece, right? It, it could, be, it could be, turn out to be an amazing thing, but it, it is so flawed in so many ways right now. And hopefully they can evolve it, right? But in, in you know, instead of kind of like putting up these false expectations, let's let's have an open discussion of how to how to make it a masterpiece. It's so interesting <laughs> you say that because I've been lurking around in Clubhouse for a couple of months, uh, and I won't claim it's more than that. So I'm you know I'm usually not a first adopter. Uh, mm-hmm. Might be a decent second adopter, but. But I do agree with you. It's not as easy as to say, "Oh, it's the hottest thing." Like you, you, you know, it's like Bitcoin for social media. Like it's going to be become big. That is not necessarily the case. And there, you're right. There are a lot of issues with it. Having said that, I mean, you're on the podcast. I'm on the podcast. Audio as a medium, and social audio, there is something real there. And Absolutely. there was, of course, there was something real there a uh, hundred years ago, right? Radio. I mean, you know, fifty years ago. Yeah, and, no. And, I mean, and there the has idea, been real things there, right? The argument to say that there's this passive time that we have, and it could be filled with something, uh, is true. It's absolutely true. Um, I think looking at the components of that, some of these podcast platforms, obviously, even your your podcast as well, like. There, there are some amazing podcasts that are have have fundamentally changed audio. Um, I would say a lot of the Clubhouse content is pretty vapid. It's it's like bad panel content, right? It's like people. It's like these panels. It would be a side like, panel at best. Yeah, <laughs> it's time. like it's like you know it, these are these conferences that you go to and you look at a panel of twelve executives and you're just like none of them have anything to say. It's <laughs> like what? What? Why? Well, and am there's I panel stacking too. Like I have noticed, there's a lot of panel stacking. Like they're, you know, oh, I come on your panel, you come on mine, and that really destroys an event. And believe me, I think you and I probably between us have arranged enough events in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And and when you start getting into panel stacking, you're you're in trouble because then you're not focused on the content. Yeah. You're focused on doing people favors, and that gets you into real trouble with the audience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, last question, looking at the next decade, what, what do you think is going to um, happen here? We're talking about the future of marketing tech. Is this AI kind of evolution, but this issue around what these creative professionals that you studied in your PhD, are they going to go one way, that or the other? or And, and, and is that going to really matter? Or is technology just marching forward? What, what, what's happening to creatives? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that we've learned over the last... 20, 30 years, I would say, is that even though technology was here, the change of that technology didn't happen as fast as people thought when it came to how money was allocated for media budgets and things like that. So it always takes a little bit longer. Um, and, I, and, I, and my big caveat is exactly kind of what I, I mentioned to you up front, Chand. Right now, uh, as we head to the back half of 2021, there's such a powerful movement of the traditional old guard, you know, desperate to get you back to every, every traditional event so they can suck your money out of you for... And your time. You know, and your time. And the you know. travel industry joining exactly. that and the airline industry, everyone wants right. you. The hotels so and every... Yeah. It's a... Yeah. Fa- but, but let's not... Let's not forget. I mean, I'm not I'm not foolish enough to to just dismiss it. The, the, that's a very powerful group, and they will they will definitely succeed in pulling back many many aspects of the way things were before the pandemic. Um, so that will, I think, slow things down. That being said, you know, you talk about longer term trends. What what clearly is is being seen is uh, that the information about customers is being analyzed in a much more uh, on, on every basic way. So first thing is companies are actually structuring their data to be utilized. So that's a big change, right? So you see a lot of big companies and small companies investing to structure that data to be analyzed. You see a lot of companies investing in hiring not only one person to, to be the shiny object around data, but huge teams of people now to manage that data. And, and so that will, so this idea of the, what used to get a lot of lip service of like a data-driven strategy is actually probably going to be less lip service, right? It'll be, uh, it, it'll be something that becomes true, for, especially for successful businesses, um, as they as they use that information to make changes, I mean, we have a huge data team now, and I mean, the, some of the learnings just collected during the pandemic, you know, radically changed our approach, and you know, we grew tenfold during the pandemic. So, I I, I think that there's huge advantages for folks that uh, focus on on that area. We're going to see more and more things like social media platforms, the TikToks or whatever of this world are going to gain more and more traction. And we're going to see more of that kind of you-focused world of media being what we see, right? Uh, the connected TV universe, whether it be the classic stuff that we have on Netflix or you know, H, you know, the new HBO Max or you know, any, of these, any of these various channels reflects the new way that consumers live now. Um, will they all survive? Absolutely not, right? Not every car brand survived, right? <laughs> when cars came out. 
but they'll evolve and essentially they will reflect more and more of what that kind of programmatic media world was that uh, that that appeared um, out of the digital media space. And that will become, I think, the ultimately the kind of the framework, the general framework, assuming that we can find ways around uh, privacy. And so privacy is always the big discussion and how people manage customer data and how you make sure people will feel safe around that data. But I do believe ultimately um, people will want to share that information for media and services and things like that. And so it will become, I believe that we'll move to more and more of a marketplace model where people will become more and more educated about their own information. And hopefully, maybe not in the next decade, maybe in 20 years time, they'll be able to kind of negotiate their real value uh, uh, with a marketer. Well, thanks, Bant. It's been a wide-ranging conversation from Gary Baldi to corporate events uh, via TikTok. Uh, it was slightly unexpected, but I guess I set it up myself, so I'm uh, myself to blame. I hope it was at least somewhat interesting to to our audience. I certainly was entertained, and I thank you for the for the wisdom and also, you know, to have a research-based approach uh, to this area. I think is just very wise. So, thank you so much for sharing your observations. Yeah, and great to be on your show. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you today. You have just listened to episode 121 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of MarTech. In this conversation, we talked about the evolution of marketing technology. My takeaway is that marketing technology is already infused with AI, yet the change has gone largely without much discussion. Perhaps because the technologies used had already got so much mileage in other domains, it was regarded as less of a discussion point in marketing. Also, it challenges the notion of creativity as something uniquely human. My take is that we will be surprised both at the creative results machine algorithms can yield and by its limitations. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 72, This Zero User Interface Experience, episode 54 on the future of AR, or episode 71, Future Tech, a preview. Futurized, conversations that matter.